the initial intention was to share our cultures, but we learned how we are also sharing with each other and creating a sense of belonging by feeling that we are that we are contributing to, to Canadian society. Hello and welcome to Dispersion. Dispersion is a podcast by the Zori Institute that analyzes and celebrates both the diverse and the common experiences of diasporas living away from their homeland. I'm your host, Jen. Today on Dispersion, we are joined by Marta Bazouk and Lily Vieira de Carvalho as we discuss cultural education and culture continuity. Marta is the Executive Director of the Holodomor Research and Education Consortium, HREC, a project of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies from the University of Alberta, but there is a Toronto office. HREC was founded in 2013 with the mandate to promote knowledge and awareness of the Holodomor through a range of research, education, outreach activities, engaging academic audiences, educators, and the broader public. Marcia herself has more than 25 years of experience in international development and in the not-for-profit sector. In the early 1990s, while representing the National Democratic Institute for International Affairs in Ukraine, she worked with local activists to establish the first nationwide election monitoring organization, the Nonpartisan Committee of Voters. As Ukraine Program Officer for Winrock International, Marta oversaw the establishment of a national network of women's centers that offer job skills training programs, domestic violence hotlines, and other services. She holds a master's degree in journalism from Columbia University. Lily is the executive director of the Vancouver Latin American Cultural Center, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to contribute to the education and cultural legacy of all Canadians by exploring and sharing a deeper understanding of Latin American arts and cultures. Lily was one of the founders of VLACC and its vice president from 2012 to early 2019, while also chairing the programming committee. Since incorporation, she has been involved in all levels of the organization's activities, from marketing and communications to fundraising efforts. She's also the spokesperson of the Consulate General of Brazil in Vancouver Citizen Council. Born in Brazil, Lily immigrated to Vancouver in 2008 and has over 30 years of experience in arts management. Since accepting the executive director position with VLACC, Lily led an eight-month capacity building plan that prepared the organization to expand its fundraising and planning strategies, while also developing governance, volunteer recruiting, and retention. In that same period, she collaborated in doubling the organization's budget. Recently, Lily led the work of integrating VLACC's new website with a donor and member management database, while also planning for the 2021 program lineup. Marta, Lily, thank you so much for joining us on Dispersion today. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you both a little bit more about your experiences, specifically with cultural education and cultural continuity. We can think of cultural continuity as the spread of cultural heritage from one generation to another. In terms of diasporas and diaspora formation, the importance or significance of cultural continuity is often heightened as groups leave the homeland for the hostland. Cultural education, therefore, is the ways through which groups sustain this culture, and in the context of wider social political influences and other external factors, how they teach the next generation, cultural practices, traditions, values, etc. Before we get into that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your both of your respective backgrounds. So Marta, maybe let's start with you. How do you define your cultural background? If you weren't born in Canada, when did you emigrate? And within Canada, have you always lived where you live now? Oh, first, let me just say what a pleasure it is to be here today. And uh, this is a discussion I, I can't get enough of. 
I was born in New Jersey in the United States to um, a, my father's from Ukraine and my mother is actually of Mennonite Scottish descent. So I grew up with an awareness of my Ukrainian ancestry, but uh, also sort of a conscious choice to get more involved. I have three siblings and it, it's an interesting study in contrast. I'm the most involved in a diaspora community of, of my siblings. I came to Toronto 20 years ago now when um, my husband actually, he's an academic and he teaches at University of Toronto and that's why we came here. And we've lived in Toronto the, our entire time as Canadians. Wonderful. I think that'll offer a really interesting perspective when we start talking about community uh, mm-hmm. participation as well. And Lily, how does your experience differ? I know in your bio, we heard a little bit about your path to coming to Canada, um, but how would you define your cultural background? Uh, well, I'm a white Latin American uh, originally from Brazil. Uh, I was born in Brasilia, the, the capital of Brazil in its first year, the you know, the modern capital. My heritage is Italian and Portuguese, which means that back in Brazil, I, I was part of the, of the colonizing group. I was the colonizer, which uh, made a, a whole lot of difference when I immigrated as, and, became, and arrived here in Canada as, as a Latin American. I uh, have lived here in the ancestral lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tisleil-Waututh nations, also known as Vancouver, since 2018. I immigrated because because of my partner, so pretty much I immigrated for love. And, uh, and, and my background is in, in in arts and culture. I I was a, an an arts producer back in Brazil, working mainly with visual arts. And um, I managed to make a, a transition to still be able to, to work in, in, with arts and culture since I, I arrived here. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing both of you a little bit more about your backgrounds. So when we think about cultural education, it's sometimes been defined as how we teach individuals to reflect upon not only their own culture, but the cultures of others and even culture in general. So in diasporas and indigenous and minority groups, cultural education is often seen as an important aspect of how they transmit particular cultures and ways of life that diverse populations need to pass on to their future generations. And the flip side is it's to promote understanding, tolerance, and cultural sustainability. So I'm interested to know how you both perceive this concept of cultural education. Marta, maybe we'll start with you. What does cultural education mean for you and and how have you come to this definition? I think when you value the culture that you come from, you want to not only preserve it, but to transmit it to the next, not only to the next generation, but to contribute to the broader culture around you more generally. Uh, I see every culture as a piece of the mosaic of human experience, and each culture tells us something about humanity. And conversely, the absence or destruction of a culture is destroying a piece of the human experience or of humanity. So it, it's a responsibility. In the Ukrainian case, I'm from a diaspora that was displaced and dispossessed. The, the My father's generation left Ukraine and we were raised with this feeling of a responsibility to preserve and promote what was being destroyed in the homeland. 
And I've always thought, you know, how does it feel different to be Italian, for example? Um, because in my childhood, it, it was, you could say, a burden sometimes, but there was definitely the feeling that it had to be preserved here because it was in danger back home. And then you get to a point, uh, I have a 20-year-old son, but I was telling him about um, this conversation we were going to have today. And, you know, the point where you say, am I going to send him to Ukrainian Saturday school? And this is a very, a very formal form of cultural education. It wasn't something he wanted to do. You know, as parents, do you make the choice for him that someday you're going to appreciate this and, and there are these institutions and the community has built them and we are going to be as part of this community sending you for the next, oh, I don't know how many years it was from the time, you know, he was seven till he finished high school that, you know, a good, good chunk of his Saturday was being quote, you know, culturally educated. And, and mm. well, you can have a discussion with him, his generation about whether they appreciate that they were educated that way or not. But, you know, that, that, that there comes a point where you have to make, uh, decisions consciously. If we're going to do this, then we will do it with a sense of purpose and, and make that choice. Absolutely. I mean, we have another episode that we were able to speak to. A, we did a cross-generational discussion. So that exact question of when as a parent or as an older person from an older generation of a diaspora, do you impart that knowledge and how do you do it and is it in a formal way or an informal way and if you choose not to do you run the risk that you know your children the next generation will grow up and say oh I wish I'd learned the language or I wish I'd been exposed to that so it's a really interesting conversation about how and and it comes down to cultural education and how cultures will continue and and how the generations respond differently. Lily, for you, and from having a different kind of academic or a different background in the arts, how do you perceive the concept of cultural education and what is it meant for you? Um, I, I, I really uh, uh, enjoy and can relate to what Marta was talking about, uh, bringing this. I think Canada has this beautiful thing of of the, the concept of mosaic uh, as opposed to the concept of the, the uh, United States melting pot. And so here we talk about preserving uh, our culture and our, and our heritage when we, when we bring to, when we, what we bring when we come to Canada. So there we, we, we don't melt away. We don't melt with away. To, to other cultures. We have an, an opportunity to carry on with, with our culture and share that and also learn from, from other cultures. And I think that that makes this experience uh, of immigration so, so rich. Um, in my case specifically, I, I came to, to Canada very determined to have to to. to Carry this with me and be and be able to somehow uh, act on it. And so uh, I like when I when I first immigrated. One of the first things I did was to go to the to the Brazilian consulate here and introduce myself and talk about my previous experience and offer my services. Let's say you know I would like to be able to contribute. And then I got involved with the Latin American community. The, the Brazilian community was 
very small. It's uh, it's definitely a growing community, but very small when I first uh, got here, and I felt this um, disconnection to to the Latin American community, which is a thing, which is something that I had I hadn't felt as strongly when I when I was in Brazil, because and I think that's great that I, I get to exercise this in in Canada. Brazil is this huge country in the the, the middle of, of South America and in Latin America, because of its sheer size and also because we speak Portuguese while most countries around us speak Spanish, and plus you know the the Amazon forest, the Andes, so there are the kind of this uh, geographical um, limits or or barriers. I think that in Brazil, I felt very Brazilian and not uh, so connected to to to, all, to other countries in Latin America. And in here, I was able to see that that connection and start like uh, learning more about the our points of of contact. And so I see uh, I, I noticed quite early uh, a need for uh, things like heritage language which is even this term heritage language was something that was new to me and and that carries like the language that you that you learn at home the language that 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 your parents speak and how that can connect you with your culture and your and your roots and i i because of the way immigration is is carried in canada we get a lot of young folks you know, people who come here to study and to do their um, university or masters and their PhDs, and so we have uh, lots of young families. And I could notice quite early this need within the community of keeping connected to the culture and to the language and to into the costumes of, of the country, which made me feel that this connection with black was an important one in the in the sense of being a legacy project uh, by getting the center and and establishing this space for Latin American culture this is, will be a focal point for generations to come and for people to feel connected to this culture and also to share the the Latin cultures of of Latin America thank you Lily I think it's fascinating you highlighted a, a point that I really wanted to get to was how you felt and how your sense of identity in Brazil feels differently now as part of a diaspora. And I think it's really interesting that it has broadened to include other countries within Latin America and that cultural exchange that may not have taken place there does take place here. Um, Marta, for you, Lily shared a little bit about how she was inspired to find to found the center. Um, and what it provides to the community. For you, how did you get involved with the HREC? And did your involvement with the diaspora have any influence on you working in the field? Yes, but uh, something Lily said, I was thinking uh, how interesting her experience is someone coming from Brazil to Canada, uh, and I'm someone from North America with an attachment to a heritage of a place I wasn't born. So... I'm, you know, Lily's saying that in Brazil, she felt Brazilian and, and then it was here that she sees herself. She was able to connect to a Latin American community. And I'm thinking about how when I go to Ukraine, then I 
I might identify myself as Ukrainian Canadian here, but then how do the people there think of me? I'm not Ukrainian the way they're Ukrainian. You both have points of similarity, but then some very clear points of difference. So that's a, a different thing for Lily to go to Brazil than for me to go to Ukraine for that reason. Um, about how I got involved with Hrek. I had worked, so my, as you mentioned, I had, my uh, education was in journalism. I worked at Harvard University. They have a Ukrainian research institute. And I found it very satisfying to translate the work of researchers, of scholars, and show its relevance to people who aren't scholars. And that's still what I do with the whole of the more. It's not so broadly known as it might be. There's all kinds of research being done on very various aspects of it. And I find it very satisfying to be in a position to uh, make connections between institutions, to look for ways to show the relevance of this event to people in other fields. For example, we, we've had conferences on the Holodomor and famine studies. There are people who study the Irish famine or the Bengali famine who really don't know anything about the Holodomor or the Holodomor and, and communism. There's, there was an enormous famine in China, but these people who study these, these events haven't typically followed each other's research or in the field of genocide to, to acquaint genocide scholars with the Holodomor when they haven't thought about it previously. That's all really satisfying to me. Um, thinking about the end of your question, it, it's, it feels like a part of a, a larger commitment to preserving Ukrainian culture and promoting it, especially in the case of the Holodomor. The, it happened and then it was denied. The, the, the authorities, the, the state that it happened under the Soviet Union continued to exist for more than 50 years denying that it had happened. So I'd say commitment to the study of the Holodomor and to Holodomor awareness is for me a kind of a combining of caring about the Ukraine's culture, but also I think I have a North American education that uh, I embrace the values of truth and, and justice. And having people know that this happened is a reflection of, of those values that probably came from my education here. So Marta, you got to it a little bit um, just in that previous response, but why do you think work of centers like the HREC and like the VLACC is important in your communities? So in other words, what influence do you think the work of your respective centers has on the community? How does it help community building and in retaining language and customs? That, that, I think that's a huge question and probably the answer, you would get a different answer, answer from anyone in the community about any institution. But I can speak for myself that I think that there's this validation by having institutions uh, that, that your experience warrants the study of that experience. That it's not just the multiplication of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of individual experiences, but there is somehow a collective experience that is worthy of coming together and acknowledging. And in the case of what I do, the study of a genocidal famine, 
there is that need for recognition. I think it's fair to say that maybe a couple generations ago in the community, as a new immigrant group, there's a certain amount of needing to prove yourself and even shame of victimhood that there's a that that the community maybe had to reach a certain maturity to realize that that this was something to stand tall and say yes we commemorate our victims yes we research this part of our history and uh, we don't allow these people to be forgotten and the crime must be acknowledged and known so i and this is specific to whole of the more i mean there are many other kinds of cultural institutions but in one that studies something Grim. It's not only about the awful side of history, but also the resilience of a community that has survived, studies what happened, shares that knowledge with other communities, and commemorates those who were lost during that period. And Lily, for you, in in terms of this question, how do you find you best connect with your community? And what are some of the instruments you use through your center? to share cultural knowledge with others, either inside the group or kind of outside this cultural group? Well, fo- following up on what um, Martha was saying too, I think that there is, um, the Latin American community is not, uh, it, it's very diverse. And so I think there is there is a, a richness in, in, in that diversity. And I believe that the, the initial group that, that founded uh, VLAC we were very interested in going beyond the the surface meaning beyond the cliches of uh, of how latin american is perceived i think that especially when we talk about culture what gets here what arrives here and what um, canadians in general see of, of latin american cultures is it's very small, like a, 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 a very small part of of what is happening uh, down there. And we thought there was an opportunity for us to share Latin America uh, a, a little bit more. So we are a group that we, we started uh, facing outwards, uh, thinking let's get together as a community and share Latin America with all Canadians instead of like facing um just our community and saying, you know, let's work just to to work with a sense of belonging. I think that the sense of belonging comes also from um, from the pride that we carry on our culture. When you think that uh, Latin American is the the home of, if I'm not mistaken, uh, six uh, Nobel prizes of literature, and you know, all Grammys, Grammys and Oscars and all all those things and still what what uh, people think when they think about Mexico is still you know sombreros and mariachi and Dia de los Muertos or Cinco de Mayo which is another kind of uh, North American <laughs> construct and when they talk about Brazil we are talking about samba and bossa nova and, and soccer and and we know that we have uh, so much more to offer. So when we when we have an opportunity to come together as a as a community, we uh, the initial intention was to share our cultures. But uh, on the development of on this almost ten years now that we are in this project, we learned how we are also sharing with each other and creating a sense of belonging by feeling that we are. Uh, 
that we are contributing to to Canadian society by bringing our uh, you know the the colorful and and quite sophisticated actually cultures of of, of Latin America to to share uh, with with everyone. And so I think that uh, the, our main goal is to establish a center, like a physical space, and we feel that this visibility is something that will um, build on this, and that will be uh, uh, like will give it will give the community a focal point. Uh, uh, COVID made us uh, learn how how that there isn't uh, anything like this in, in Canada yet. And so we have this potential of of contributing to the society with our cultures in a in a national way, and that is it's very exciting to me. And I think that that uh, it, it, it generates this side effect of creating a, a a community and a sense of belonging. Although this is not how we we at first set out set out, out to do. But the, the work that we have been doing have, has been proving this. When we talk about Latin American identity, even, it's a very fluid concept because it's not a purely geographical concept. Uh, you can frame Latin America as being all the countries uh, south of Rio Grande, but you know, we can also think that the, it's the countries that speak, that speak uh, Spanish and Portuguese or that they were colonized by Portuguese and Spanish. So it can go from 20 to 32 countries. And I actually think that that's this fluidity, the fact that you can't nail down Latin America so easily is in our advantage. It shows that the, or every, everyone's advantage actually, because you can't so easily put a label on a culture, and 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 because there is, there are blurry lines between the cultures of Latin America, and and it's on these blurry lines that the, that the magic happens, and that's what we are so interested in in exploring and sharing. So, Lily, I think you touched on a really important point that we talked about in the beginning as well of Canada's concept of multiculturalism and the practice of multiculturalism and how important cultural exchange is to contributing to this broader mosaic. So I'm curious how in the center you bridge these diverse Latin American cultures among constituents and colleagues to promote cultural education. Do you host events that combine different cultures of different Latin American countries? How does that, in practice, how does that cultural education um, in the Canadian community work. I can give you a couple of examples that I think are very representative of what we do and how this this works. We, um, for instance, we have uh, a Latin American choir, and this choir sings songs like popular and traditional songs of Latin America and in Portuguese and in Spanish. And we have twenty members in the choir from eleven different countries. And during the, the COVID, you know, when we had the restrictions of COVID and they couldn't uh, meet to rehearse, actually, they only came, uh, went back to rehearsing in person last week. But they were, this group that was very tight uh, got back to meet again. But during that time, they, they couldn't really uh, rehearse because, you know, voices don't, don't synchronize on Zoom. And so they were pretty much singing to each other. We decided on themes for uh, for the 
the different evenings where they would uh, meet on Zoom and, and determine themes like uh, songs from your childhood or songs from a, a woman composer in your country. And so there was so much to share and, and the conversations were just so beautiful and touching. And this solo singing to each other was something um, very special, something that I, I cherish. Another program that we have that, that really uh, helps with this uh, sense of dialogue and, and with um, sharing our cult culture with each other is uh, a Latin American short stories uh, reading group. And so it's, it works like a, a book club, but instead of you having to read a full book, you just read a couple of short stories. So it's very accessible because you can even read the, 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 those stories that same day. And that is uh, moderated by professors of the Latin American Studies program at the University of British Columbia. So anytime that we meet for one of these uh, conversations and these moderated conversations around uh, short stories from Latin America. In any room, there are people from 8, 10, 12 uh, uh, different countries, always Canadians too, you know, uh, uh, Canadian born, uh, but Latin Americans from different backgrounds. And it's just so interesting to me when we are reading something like Gabriel Garcia Marquez or Rosario Castellanos and and there is a point of being able to relate to that those stories uh, in some level that almost everybody can feel. And so this merge of or this points of connection between uh, our cultures, it's something that I think is is not explored enough and and there is there is so much to do. One of Vlad's values, or we we have like four main values, and uh, and ones to be informed, and in order to be curious, and and want to be welcoming, and we we have so many opportunities to to work around those values, and and be really together, and and we are creating moments where people feel feel safe to share and, and learn from each other. And, and I think that, that this is endless. We are going to keep being able to, to, to explore that uh, for, for a really long time. And I, I feel that we are already um, establishing that, or being able to do that in, in our you know, few years of, of activity. I, I really look forward to the things that we still can do. Wonderful. I think there's a real element of the power of the arts in that and how it's able to bring communities together and to facilitate those shared experiences, which is what we're talking about here. And the whole point of the podcast is to consider similarities and differences um, and shared experiences. Marta, for you, working in a research consortium that focuses on a historical event like the Holodomor, what strategies have you used or are you hoping to use to engage the younger generations and, and Canadians across the country in your work and in the Holodomor in and of itself? Well, we have actually a education division of our work and we have a director of education, Valentina Koreliev, who for more than 30 years has worked to achieve the integration of the Holodomor into curricula in schools and that continues developing 
uh, pedagogical materials. We're also a partner on something called the Holodomor Awareness Tour. It's actually a retrofitted RV, this big bus with state-of-the-art technology inside that goes to schools to teach about the whole of the more. So there are, there are initiatives uh, of the, of those sorts. And then we have outreach that isn't always specifically only to people from within a immigrant or ethnic or diaspora community. Uh, we have been trying to engage, we do our best to engage, we call them early career scholars and usually they're younger academics. Uh, we were supporting, for example, a panel at one of the major conferences in the field. And then with COVID, the conference was canceled. And so we thought, well, why don't we instead organize something online just for these scholars? So we started last year a approximately monthly seminar series for these it's maybe 15 young scholars who whose research somehow relates to the whole of the more. It might be the Soviet Union in the 1930s or a, fa- a famine in a different part of the world or comparative genocide studies. So every month, one of them has agreed, volunteered to present. It could be a chapter in a dissertation or a paper. They present that paper to the others. Uh, they send that out in advance. And the young scholar also communicates to us who their dream commentator is. So these are early career scholars, but they might say, I'd love to have you know, some big name in the field that they've admired, read this chapter and give me feedback. And what I found was that um, even the most uh, big names in the field are flattered that somebody would select them to be their dream commentator. And so it's really worked out well. We've been able to draw in not only the early career scholars, but but some of these more senior academics. And what started out as sort of a, a disappointment that the, the conference was canceled and the panel wasn't going to happen has ter- turned into this incredible uh, occasion for these young scholars to really develop this peer group. Um, a matter of fact, one of them recently got a prestigious fellowship in Vienna, and she was picked up at the airport by another one of them. They'd never met in person before, but they know each other because of their involvement in this emerging scholarship, Holodomor group. And, uh, you know, I'd say a certain portion of them are, you could call from a diaspora community. Uh, But this is actually, you know, a case where we're trying to reach beyond just our community to, 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 to share the story of what happened. This, I mean, the Institute had a, a slightly similar experience this summer. We held the annual Genocide and Human Rights University program, but virtually, just given COVID restrictions. Um, and we welcomed students from all over the world uh, virtually through Zoom for two weeks of intensive seminar learning. Um, and we were really hopeful that there still would be a lot of cultural exchange. And, and there was. I, I mean, I know speaking from my experience, I was so impressed by everyone's willingness to share and to connect and not only to bring their academic differences um, and experiences, but their own cultural context to the discussion. So, and you've both shared a little bit about how your organizations were able to adapt and to pivot, but how important do you think having a physical space and a center is for facilitating cultural education? And 
If it isn't as important as you previously thought, what are some ways that you're looking forward to connecting with more Canadians digitally and virtually uh, in the next little while? Lily, maybe we can start with you. How has the House of Black been a part of the community and how are you hoping to merge these two, the physical and the virtual together in your future programming? So uh, this is a, a huge subject for us because uh, Vlack was born to establish a physical space, and, and many years later we we are not not there yet. We knew uh, starting up that this was going to be uh, an uphill battle. We are in Vancouver, which is uh, a, 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 like known for being expensive for for spaces, and so we we knew that we we would need to to prepare for that in part of this preparation for the for getting the the physical space was to do um, studies to figure out if there was an actual demand for what we're trying to 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 do and if it was feasible and something that started as a hunch because we are seeing the vibrancy the number of Latin american arts and culture events that were happening around us uh, uh, without a dedicated space uh, was proved by the studies. And so we did a scan of what was happening in Vancouver, figure out there were, back in 2015, when this study was done, over 150 indoor, uh, like excluding festivals, indoor events with a Latin American theme was happening in town every year without a dedicated space. So I always joke that it, we uh, we were seeing Latin America. It's it's a joke, but it's, it's quite true that we were seeing Latin American events happening at the you know Russian Hall or any other uh, uh, nation's cultural center or space that that you could rent. And so with that, the they were all scattered throughout town without uh, a focal point. So we are. Uh, Kind of, a, we're really not trying to to invent anything. the The talent is out there. The, the events are happening, and we would just want an umbrella over them and be able to to manage a space that will give uh, the Latin American community visibility, a focal point. I I, I always imagine if a place like that uh, was around when I first arrived here, and the difference that it would have made in my life. And I keep seeing that happening over and over again with the community growing and, you know, new talent arriving, new families arriving. And, and, um, and so I think that this, this space, this focal point is, is really key. It's something that, that we, uh, we should have, we, we, we deserve, like we should, we should give that to ourselves, but it's also going to be, um, uh, you know, our gift to to the city and to this country because uh, our space has this power of creating, um, you know, of being a hub. It makes this this it, it's it can be magnetic, and and that's what we are we are hoping to create. Marta, for you, I'm sure it's slightly different in the research and the academia side. But have you found since adapting to pandemic restrictions that you've brought in a new audience? Or is, do you think um, research can be communicated virtually 
in new ways, like you're talking about your your kind of seminar and the peer groups. Um, what are some ways you've seen a change? Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to pretend that virtual is better or can completely replace in person. We, we all know there's there's something about meeting people in person and spending time with them that sort of cements relationships. On the other hand, I don't know that we're ever going to not do the virtual anymore. When we, I wouldn't want to only do virtual conferences, but I think we've seen how we can really involve people from all over the world who wouldn't otherwise be involved. There are people who, for all kinds of reasons, aren't going to are for our own budgets. We we can uh, we can engage that many more people by being able to parallelly have some of our sessions online, for example. And uh, Lily said that so beautifully. I, I, I wish I'd written it down, what that, uh, the power of a, a physical space to create a hub. Um, yeah, once you have the space, then, then the creativity starts about, about the programming. Uh, people want to, you'll, you get all kinds of proposals for, for events and, and things that you could do there. In the case of the Whole of the Mar, there are, when you have a physical space, you get proposals for films you can show. You get proposals for that. There are artists who have done various interpretations of what's happened. Photography exhibits, uh, lectures. There's no end to what what the ripple effect is from having a physical space. And somehow this conversation also reminds me of another one I've been having about memorials and statues. There is a whole of the more monument in Toronto, and I I have to admit I was not the biggest supporter of it as I thought it sort of was a lack of imagination. Like if you don't know what else to do, pay for a monument and it's going to sit there and who's ever going to look at it. But it has become a community focal point to to remember and commemorate what happened. And even, for example, I've been invited to uh, address a university a genocide course. The, the professor wants to get off the virtual um, carousel and, and, and have an outdoor day where they go outside and they'll go to the Holocaust Memorial. I believe they're visiting um, a, a, a site of, that commemorates the Armenian genocide. And we'll use that space, the physical monument of the Holodomor, to have a discussion about what happened, how it's remembered. And so, yeah, I've come to have a, a greater appreciation of what, what it means to create a place that brings people together. I think those are both great examples of there can be a hybrid model. Mm -hmm. And in terms of, Lily, as you said, this hub and how that would have impacted you if it had existed when you kind of were first settling and building your life in Canada. I think there is something to be said when we talk about cultural education for being surrounded by people who are interested or who are inspired and and within the same culture as you. But to flip that question on its head and to wrap up today, as we talk about cultural continuity and the importance of sustaining cultural practices and how we do this through physical spaces and through events, but what about the, the flip side, which is the cultural discontinuity? So in other words, are there any cultural traditions or experiences that you have chosen to let go of? And do you think they exist? And how much attention do we need to pay to them when we consider passing down cultural culture through generations? 
Lily, maybe we'll start with you. Do you have any experience with this idea of cultural discontinuity? Not much. I don't think so. I think that, of course, I, I, I miss a certain intangible thing that 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 I feel in Brazil that I, I, I don't encounter here and that's just hard to to explain. But and so I think that there is the so I, I, I that's why I think that it's uh, it's important to to go back and to you know to visit and to in to be back in Brazil to renew to renew that that feeling and that um there's something that just the, the physical presence gives, and so that's uh, uh, also kind of relates with the the importance of a of a physical space. But uh, in my very personal uh, aspect, I think I was born to be a Brazilian Canadian. You know, there are <laughs> there are things that uh, that I, I I got here that that make sense to me and that I, I think I missed in Brazil although I, I couldn't put put my fang, finger on it and so you know let go of uh, uh, open uh, you know uh, quotes uh, Latin American time and value punctuality for <laughs> instance is, uh, is, is, is it's something that I adapt so so easily to you know events that have an end time for instance <laughs> which is which is it, it feels to me like such a brilliant thing to to have <laughs> but and also uh, uh things like environmental concern as part of the daily decisions that that that's something that's part of the daily lives here of course that is getting uh way better in in, in the 15 years that i uh, i i have been here by that's why i think that is like connecting with the latin american community and calling it my own and feeling latin american uh, helped me in this in in a certain feeling of continuity because i i i see myself uh, in, in the mirror let's say in kind of a uh, not a perfect mirror but in some sort of mirror in in the latin american community and 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 that that gave me a sense of of belonging and I think that that can be true to so many Latin Americans if they they if they are open to it and just like curious enough, and and to learn about each other's uh, each other's cultures. And so, I, I'm very interested in in this bridge and in, in the in intangible concept of being a Latin American and what that means. And and I think that that's something like worth pursuing and and that this. It can make this discontinuity or this gap a, a little, a little tighter, a little uh, smaller for for immigrants. And and I hope that Black will will be here to play a little bit uh, of a part in, in 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 bridging that gap. Thank you, Lily. Marta, for you, I'm wondering if it's different in terms of focusing or centering on an event such as the Holodomor and how you teach about it and how you pass knowledge down to future generations? Is there anything in your experience working in this world for, for so long that you've chosen to not pass on? Oh, first all, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll comment more directly just personally. Somehow, as you were speaking about cultural discontinuity and, and what cultural traditions have you chosen to let go of 
the 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 Ukrainian Christmas Christmas tradition came flooding into my mind because there's this kind of cultural expectation of this preparing this twelve course meal and women uh, traditionally the preparation has fallen on women and people take pride in making the traditional dishes. I mean, you can get on on Facebook and I have any number of friends who will be posting, for example, their perfect Pascha, the Easter bread at Easter time, and the beautifully laid table. So, you know, I have this bit of guilt about doing major corner cutting and buying as much of the stuff as I can, rather than, you know, slaving in, in the kitchen. And no one said I have to do it. But there's, you know, when you're part of a culture, it's there that I think, oh, isn't that nice? I, I you know, people are doing it. I'm not doing it. But somehow I've made that choice. Uh, and, you know, that might sound trivial, but uh, it's something you grapple with, which what what's what do you consider essential? So I, I, I want the 12 dishes. I just don't necessarily need to make 12 dishes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 12 is a that's a lot. That's a significant cooking day, I would assume. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, that's I think it's been a cooking week for for women for a, and, it, and then things, of course, shift. There are plenty of men who are, are, are in the kitchen now also helping prepare the meals. But yeah, that that's something very, very concrete to me that where you where I don't necessarily have to do how, how it was done for for generations. And on the whole of the more, I think I, I, I look at the language has changed. Maybe there was sort of more martyrdom language that came from the church. And maybe we've moved away to uh, maybe a more secular kind of commemoration because we're in Canada and we're more inclusive. And so we probably talk about it differently and, and commemorate differently than you would if you were in Ukraine. And I don't know that that's been totally conscious, but it's maybe just a shift that reflects, you know, our, our Canadian context. Wonderful. Thank you both so much for sharing not only your personal anecdotes, but more about your organizations and the important role that they're playing in the community at the moment. And thank you again just for joining us today. I think that wraps us up. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to you, Jen. Thanks, Martha. And thanks to the Zorian Institute. Absolutely. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Dispersion, a podcast by the Zorian Institute, which is a nonprofit organization that serves the cause of scholarship and public awareness relating to issues of universal human rights, genocide, and diaspora homeland relations. If you'd like to learn more about diaspora studies or about the Zorian Institute's other projects and programs, visit our website at www.zorianinstitute.org, that's Z-O-R-Y-A-N, and find us across your favorite social media platforms at Zorian Institute. Next time on Dispersion, we'll be talking to two brand new guests who share with us their unique diaspora experiences, and we'll introduce you to a new concept within diaspora studies. Find Dispersion on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening. <laughs>